Welcome to the Working Together podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from the people, projects, businesses, campaigns, communities, and so on, who are striving for a more sustainable and progressive world. I call them the archipelagos of a possible future. You'll hear their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, hopefully you'll walk away with some actionable advice to start your own archipelago because what the world needs more than anything right now is more archipelagos of a possible future so have a listen and join me i've heard a lot of people joke use the term you know our company is pre-legal in scare quotes meaning what we're doing no one knows if it's legal or illegal but before anyone finds out whether or not it's legal, before you know there can be a court challenge or before a legislature can catch up, we'll have made a ton of money. And if we've made a ton of money, we'll have enough money to convince some legislator that we are gonna be good for their little world and that they should legalize us. In this episode, I have a conversation with Tyler Elliott Batillion to talk about organized labor and ethics in Silicon Valley and how we need to defend workers and communities against the perils of the gig and surveillance economies. It's basically all about starting an archipelago of a possible future from within the existing power structure and how to speak truth to power if you are an employee or a worker, temporary or otherwise, that is working within that system. I hope you enjoy it. First of all, Tyler, uh, thank you very much for joining the podcast i uh i'm very curious about uh your your back history here i know a little bit about it from uh reading up on you online and and seeing some of your background in relationship to the articles that you've been uh putting together on medium and the and the thoughts you've been having in those in those articles um but uh but i'd, I'd like to hear it again in your own words your story how you've come to the work that you're doing right now, and the questions that you are exploring around technology in its relationship to labor and uh, these questions of how we could maybe do things differently or better. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I got a computer science degree from the University of Utah. That's where I was born and raised. And I did what every, you know, young aspiring computer scientist does. I was like, you know what, I could go work in Silicon Valley, right, and change the world. And bring technology to the masses. So I moved here in 2013, moved to San Francisco. I got a job with a little tech startup that, you know, it was a bunch of young kids, you know, tale as old as time in Silicon Valley. And basically the product was um, a business to business catering solution. So with like my now older, more cynical view, it was like, I was facilitating the further gilding of the San Francisco workers' cages by making it so that some office manager didn't have to think a lot about getting food delivered every day. Right. And that was the, you know, that was my contribution. That's how I was changing the world. And <laughs> and so through a series of companies that were all kind of like that, you know, right. a little banal, but but really with leadership that believed in what they were doing and the mm -hmm. importance of what we were doing. So like, I remember meeting my CEO, you know, interviewing with the CEO of that first company. And she was like, 
we're going to change the world, you know, I have such an attachment to food and the way that it brings culture into people's worlds. And we're going to bring cultural experiences into people's offices every day. And that's going to defeat racism and, you know, build bridges with different cultures. And I don't know, when I was young, 20 something, I ate that up. And now I'm like, well, change the world, defeat racism with a little bit of catering (laughs) maybe not yeah yeah and so after that i did a few other startups and i saw similar patterns actually the Mm. first startup i think the 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 motivations the ceo's motivations and the investors motivations were a little more good than some of the motivations i've seen i mean certainly still mostly about making money but Mm. at least the ceo believed she was doing a lot of good in the world but as i kept on jumping from startup to startup and seeing what other people were doing and meeting more people in San Francisco and, you know, watching San Francisco evolve over the last five years. And surely people have been here longer than me tell me, you know, it's been longer than five years. So I um, got exposed to some of the, the ideas that I'm now writing about more about trying to find a way to protect workers and from automation and from exploitation and talk about the way the hidden ways in which the work of Silicon Valley has been deployed and you know we don't really we don't realize the extent to which it's impacting our world. Mm-hmm. I think some of the revelations regarding like Russian interference in our elections in the United States has been a pretty big one for us here. We didn't really think of Facebook and Twitter as propaganda platforms, but now that someone told us like, "Oh, hey, these are really powerful platforms for propaganda." People are like, Oh crap. Yeah. We didn't think about that, but you know, we probably could have been thinking about that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, in a lot of ways too, it's it's like um you're doing your job in many ways. You're not you're not um and this this kind of comes back to this this question of uh uh of what these um digital tools are doing to jobs. They're breaking them down into tiny 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 little pieces and so you're you're left with a little line of code here that you're working on optimizing and then somebody else has theirs and so everybody's working on their thing and they're they're doing problem solving in those spaces but the the bigger picture the bigger system within which all of that is occurring um yeah I'd be I I'm curious based on what you've experienced in Silicon Valley it sounds like a lot of the uh, a lot of the leadership that have that systems view um mm-hmm. Like, how, how are they thinking of that? Yeah, okay, absolutely. I think that's great. Um, I think one thing that's absolutely true is that a lot of the software engineers, a lot of the developers get to focus on, just like you said, one little area of the problem. And so let's like take Twitter as an example. Hmm. One problem that Twitter has is they need to be able to take an incoming message and then send it to all the right people. So, okay, incoming message, run it through an algorithm that's got to be fast and decide who should this message get sent to, and then instantly propagate that message to potentially several hundred thousand different users, make that process efficient. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the engineer who's on that team is thinking about efficient, meaning you know, fast for the computer. Mm-hmm. How do I make this? How do I get that to all the, this piece of data, how do I get it to all the servers that it needs to be on? How do I make sure it propagates to everybody's queue really, really efficiently? 
what's the right database structure that will support that being fast. Mm-hmm. And that engineer, although they have you know incredible power regarding who sees what messages, for example, they're not thinking about the impact of those messages being shown to those particular humans on a you know human level. Mm-hmm. They're just thinking, my job is to get those those messages out there, whatever they are, whatever people say, get them to everyone. And then you look at someone who's got like a higher higher level view, you know, say Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter. And, you know, he's really, although he's got a super high level view, I think, and is capable, I think he's a very smart person, capable of thinking about problems like, you know, what happens when propagandists want to use my tools? What happens when groups like ISIS or groups like, you know, the new KKK, what happens when they want to use my tools? Although they can spend a lot of time thinking about that. They also have to, as a result of the position they're in, spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about how are we going to make money for our shareholders? You know, how do I keep my board of directors happy? And one of the things that was most frustrating to me about working in Silicon Valley is, say, even when I was spending time working at a school, a place that's all about education, it's one of those new tech boot camp schools, my leadership there was still heavily, deeply focused on, like, what is the profit per student that we're getting, you know, and how do we maximize profit per student? Not, you know, how do we maximize outcomes for students? How do we make sure that students are getting the jobs we promised them? Although that's part of, you know, marketing and stuff. So it mattered, but the clear focus from like what we saw in town hall style meetings or all hands meetings where we get access to the CEO is their, their view of what the big picture is, is, how do we grow our business XYZ percent over the next three years? Right. Interesting. And in many respects, that's kind of, that's kind of the, it's a governance problem, right? Like it's, it's how leadership is linking up with its governance mechanisms, which is its board of directors, yeah. uh, the shareholders, and the, you know, those, those are the investors who are investing in this idea Um, and so for them, the, the needs of the customer, the needs of the end user are important only in so far as it's tapping into some sort of, um, growth narrative that, that serves the interests of that investors class, I guess, which, which, you know, if you were to take like a Marxist reading of things, that's the capitalists, right? They're, they're investing their capital in because they want to see their capital grow, because so the argument goes, the logic of capital is to just continue to grow, grow and grow forever. and grow. That's what you do when you have it. You put it somewhere so that it will get bigger, not get okay. smaller. Um, and that that seems to that seems to be what's going on there. Uh, just from like the ten thousand foot level view, from from my perspective at least. Um, and so, given that dynamic. Uh, what what are the sorts of things that workers who are working in that tight compartmentalized space, mm. what are the sorts of things that they can do to begin thinking about handling this differently? Sure. Yeah. So we've seen a lot of really interesting um, Google. A lot of Google employees have been organizing in some interesting ways. And we've also seen Microsoft and to uh, lesser effectiveness, but still to a great degree, Amazon workers doing the same thing. And so I think one, here's a good example of a model that I'd like to see more workers latch onto is mm. 
couple of weeks ago, um, Google workers walked out for for most of a day. They said, hey, look, it was related to, uh, oh man, I'm gonna get the person's name wrong, but someone on the, someone high up on the Android team, like a director level, was found to have done some, you know, very inappropriate things with some of his female employees. Mm-hmm. Okay. And a huge portion of the company all across the world, all organized at the same time using internal Google tools, you know, they're very good at internal communication. And so the Google workers use those internal collaboration tools that they've already been using to build products and become effective at building products mm-hmm. and organized and staged a protest over this guy who, you know, ultimately was terminated, but with a massive in the millions of dollars severance package. So, right. you know, it's like, oh, slap you on the wrist. Yeah. Bad. How, how dare you sexually harass <laughs> our workers? Here's $90 million, but you can't work here anymore. <laughs> you know, not a huge significant punishment. Mm-hmm. And the workers of Google said, yeah, that's not enough, you know, and as a result of that, the CEO of Google and a lot of other people at Alphabet started paying attention, and now it seems like, and hopefully this remains true, it seems like they're rewriting some policies and taking action, okay? Google workers did something similar before this to protest um, their participation in a Department of Defense contract called Project Maven. Mm-hmm. Um, and they it was an AI-based project, I think, in image recognition-type software, that was going to be used on drones and workers at Google said, Hey, you know, we don't think that AI should be used for the military. Mm-hmm. That's a bad, we, AI is not ready yet for one thing too. We shouldn't be handing over those types of decision-making responsibilities to non-humans, especially, you know, non-human machines that we can barely understand the mechanics by which they make decisions. You know, we we can build them and we can train them and we know the process to train them. But once the decision is being made, those models are really poorly understand how the decision making process actually takes place after training. Mm-hmm. Poorly understood. And in result of that. And yet um, happening Google, like, oh, they made the decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we don't know what pieces of the input were important in that decision. Mm-hmm. We don't know how they were processed to make that decision goes through a neural net a neural net is basically a giant black box a really really complex math math problem that would be hard to express and way harder to understand mm-hmm. but then google published some ai principles and said hey these are the things we are and aren't going to be willing to do with ai and they pulled out of project maven so this type of you know letter writing and organization among especially like ai practitioners right now are very very valuable so when the ai practitioners say hey we're not going to do this we're not going to work for military contracts google has to take notice and go oh crap maybe we should take take a step back and so that's worked fairly well so far for google Mm -hmm. um amazon workers have done something similar in opposition to a piece of software called recognition yeah which again another ai you know person identification tool um but amazon you know history of quashing labor movements. They're very good at it by now. And they basically said, no, we're going to keep selling recognition to whoever we want to, including police departments. And by the way, we're going to pick up a contract that Microsoft employees had been letter writing Microsoft in opposition to a, something I don't know a lot about, but the Jedi contract mm-hmm. is another military AI collaboration. And Jeff Bezos and his, his executive team are like, oh yeah, we're for it. Let's do it. 
So it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a different ethos in these different companies. Right. And yeah. And just like anything else, uh, each company has different leadership, different cultural values, different, uh, interpretations of ethics and things like this. And this is, this is really, this has been a problem that has, uh, really, um, been a part of capitalism for centuries, right? You have on the one hand, you know, Robert Owen, who tries to create a cooperative factory environment in the 1800s and, and, you know, basically like help create a community that's sustainable for the people, the operators, the owners, everybody, um, and that respects individual, you know, it totally different model. Um, but then you also have Henry Ford later on, who's just, you know, bringing everything down to its incremental smallest task. And it's, it's purely about delivering that, you know, winning Ford model T that competes in the marketplace. And it's just, it comes down to leadership, like the way that our system is built that it, these leaders have so much sway over how the organizations that they own and run go about doing whatever it is they're doing um, and striking and walking out and these sorts of, um, you know, uh, ways that workers still have power, I guess, in that relationship. It seems in some instances it works and then in other instances it it doesn't seem to do anything. And another interesting uh, piece that I know you've been thinking about is this problem of the gig economy, which is another layer a new layer onto this where we are essentially, um, <laughs> you know, not in any kind of full-time labor position. So we right. don't, we don't have that ability to easily just kind of walk out and leave an employer in a lurch. If we walk out, there's going to be somebody else who will immediately come in and fill that role. Yeah. Um, and in fact, if you know, like, think about it even one step deeper, if you're an Uber driver, and you're not quick to accept that 3.5 star customer who, you know, you got 3.5 stars on Uber, your driver already knows you're a jerk, and they're not going to have a fun time driving you around. Someone's going to take them, though. Yep. Someone's going to pick them up. You know, there's so much hyper competition right there in the space that Uber has a ton of control and ability to you know, force workers to do things that workers wouldn't really, you know, doesn't really necessarily benefit them that much.
based in based in that kind of new gig economy environment, what are some, um, like maybe describe a bit, map that out for the listeners, like this this gig economy problem that we have with workers being able to organize, and whether or not you uh, you've seen any successful ideas around how that can happen. Okay, yeah. So the gig economy is very tricky because it. It was first, and some of these promises are true, but it was promised to workers as you know a way to escape some of the problems that you know we were criticizing about capitalism at the the dawn of whatever the gig economy. So you can work on your own time. You can work only mm-hmm. when you want to work. You can bid on contracts against other people in the market. So you know there's always good competition, and if you think you're good, you can rise to the top of you know your freelance writing platform or your driving platform or whatever it was. But what it does in a lot of ways that's very damaging is it removes the any responsibility that the company has to its employees. It gives them a layer of insulation. So one example in the taxi, taxi business, mm-hmm. companies have to employ taxi drivers as full-time employees, not as 1099 contractors, which means they have to provide them with certain benefits, which means mm-hmm. the taxi companies were allowed to join unions, which you know most of them did, the taxi employees rather, taxi drivers joined unions and were able to get some kind of you know protections from that union. Uh, the taxi companies bear a higher tax burden compared to the 1099 contractors bear a higher tax burden they don't have anyone paying payroll taxes. They have to pay their taxes themselves. So we gave up all these things that we didn't know we were giving up in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And people don't really realize, you know, their taxes come due and they've been working on driving Uber and they thought that they were making more money because no one was withholding any taxes from them. And then the IRS comes with a bill and they're like, whoa, you know, my tax burden was way more than I thought it was going to be. And suddenly, you know, you're surprised. Or another example is like taxi companies own the taxi cabs a lot of the time, right? Whereas with Uber, you own the car. You're responsible for the maintenance on it. You're responsible if anything goes wrong. And they've finally, you know, they have, they do have like liability insurance now through Uber. And I think some of the other driving platforms do too. But for a long time, there was a big question about whose insurance even was going to be used. If you were driving for Uber as an employee of Uber, but mm-hmm. you got in an accident, you might be on the hook personally for your insurance to pay out for it. And I, I yeah, I, yeah, I know. And that was kind of almost like a wild west period of time in it. Right. When, when these things oh, yeah. were new um, and still, we're still kind of in that in a lot of ways. Um, I think like Silicon Valley likes to perpetually be part of the wild, wild west. You know, there is a lot of, you know, love for the idea of creative destruction mm-hmm. and for disrupting event, disrupting industries. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people joke, use the term. You know, our company is pre-legal, in scare quotes. Right, meaning right. What we're doing, no one knows if it's legal or illegal. But before anyone finds out whether or not it's legal, before you know there can be a court challenge or before a legislature can catch up, yeah, we'll have made a ton of money. And if we've made a ton of money, we'll have enough money to convince some legislator that we are going to be good for their little world and that yeah. they should legalize us. 
So yeah, I yeah, it's a it's a it's a bit of a problem that that mentality. Now I I um I'm also uh I'm aware that at the time that Uber and Lyft and uh, Airbnb and these sorts of things were um, coming online, there was a, a big community of folks in Europe uh, through WeShare. Um, and other kind of similar uh, organizations like that talking about uh, platform cooperatives. So, um, you know, basically trying to tackle these same sharing economy opportunities, uh, but in, in, in a way that created a cooperative as opposed to a hierarchical organization. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? Do you feel like there's still a chance for anything like that to happen in some of these spaces or have these uh, companies effectively monopolized Hmm. the situation? No, I think that there is a chance and that there is still, you know, things that can change. I do think that we're in a time of, of pretty strong monopolies, but here's an example I've heard someone propose that I think would be great. Uber should give their driving partners shares. There should be some kind of stock option for, you know, and then you're an owner in the company, mm-hmm. and then you, your success grows when the company's success grows. And it would be a clear signal that you know we value workers because we think the stock's going to be super valuable. Uber has an insane valuation right now. I think a little overvalued, but that would be a, a direction that the company could go mm-hmm. if they chose to. That would be a huge sign that we're actually invested in our driving partners and we want them to be able to you know, live in the cities that like San Francisco, where things are getting very, very expensive, partly because of companies like Uber dragging, you know, from across the nation, lots of high, high potential earners, bringing them in, paying them high wages, displacing other people from living in the places that those new people come in, especially somewhere like SF, where, you know, housing is really challenging to build. And so we have huge huge problems in that regard. But giving giving drivers stock, I think that's one really interesting route that we could go. But I think that the workers will have to demand it. You know, It won't be something that mm-hmm. Uber just decides to do without pressure, either external pressure from politicians or from you know, users who'd say, you know, we won't use your service until you do right. X, Y, and Z for the customers, or from the driving partners who say, hey, we will not drive for Uber. Look, there's other options. We can just all drive for Lyft. And when Uber's wait times go up to 10 minutes, maybe Uber decides, okay, okay, okay. Right. We'll, pay them a little, we'll do something to pay them more. Market, have, market pressure. Yes. Pressure I mean, on the, the bottom line. That, that's the language that the people who run these companies right now understand. And there are some, you know, I don't mean to say every CEO of a tech company is, a bad person who's just trying to exploit and profiteer, like mm-hmm. um, CEO of Salesforce, Mark Benioff. He has a, a great reputation and I think does a lot of good for the area. You know, he thinks of his company as a corporate citizen of San Francisco. And so he's donated, you know, millions of dollars to build children's hospitals and he donated money to increase taxes on businesses that would definitely include his business. Mm-hmm. This year, Prop C in San Francisco passed, and partly because of Mark Benioff's big, you know, commitment to fighting for that and saying, like, look, you know, we benefit so much from the infrastructure that San Francisco has built and from the 
the kind of idea of San Francisco that's been built up throughout history as this space for innovation. And we want to give back to that and create a space where there can still be innovation and where lots of different kinds of people can still live. Um, but not not a lot of them are doing that. Interesting. You know, notably, yeah. Jack Dorsey got in some interesting fights on Twitter with Benioff over Propsy. That was kind of fun to watch. I yeah, I really think that uh, we're at a bit of a um, we're at a bit of a point right now where there's there's the owners uh, as a class, uh, you know, if you could call it. And there's still workers as a class um, mm-hmm. in, you know, not just the tech sector, but in other places as well. And, you know, I used to work for government and was part of a union through that. Um, so there's still these organizations where there is some sort of stability and workers still have some sort of um, uh, organized power in that in that sense. Um, but where do you see things going in the future? Do you feel like the trend is towards this this gig economy. I know the Susan Fowler piece that you pointed me in the direction of seemed to seem to think that that's where things are heading. And and if that's the case, what do we have to start doing right now at the owner class, at the worker class? What are some things that we should be considering? Yeah, I I wonder. I do think that you know there's a lot of economic reasons why companies would like some businesses to go towards the the gig economy direction you know unskilled labor things that anybody can do they'd like to turn that into a platform that literally anybody can sign up for because it makes it very very hard to organize it gives the workers very little power you know mm-hmm. we were talking about uber drivers could you know try and organize and force uber's hand on something but at the same time it's also very hard to imagine what that would look like you know mm-hmm. i don't think it's likely that you could get a consortium of drivers who don't, you know, they don't have a sense of camaraderie or solidarity with each other necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're coworkers, but not in the classic sense. They don't go to the same place to work. Mm-hmm. They don't go out to lunch together. You know, they're isolated. They get in their car from their house that morning. They drive. They might see other Uber drivers on the road, but it's mostly competitive. Mm-hmm. They don't want other Uber drivers to be there because then they get better prices. Surge pricing jacks up because wait times are higher. So stuff like this, they don't have any sense of like shared camaraderie in some of the natural ways that it, it would come about for factory workers that led to ability to organize. Mm-hmm. So, so I worry like Susan Fowler does that, you know, we will move that way mm-hmm. for, for economic reasons because it's easier to pay employees less if it's easier to stop them from organizing. You know, it's easier to shirk your responsibility to give them benefits and stuff like that. And it's easier to recruit and hire. All you have to do is say, hey, download this app and then go through a two-day screening process and you're hired. And then, you know, thinking even, even more about it, it's also easy to fire people. Hey, if the customers don't like you, you know, we don't know. We don't see your actual work. We don't do much evaluating of you. But if the customers don't like you, you get under three stars or whatever, boom, you're instantly fired out. So mm-hmm. they, don't, they hardly even have to manage the yeah. employee. The employees just get managed directly by the customers. And there's like a clean separation between the workers and the owners of the company. Mm-hmm. So I do worry that, you know, we'll go further in that direction and continue to make, you know, it's like the, the new outsourcing 
make an app for that and we'll just insource it but via some applications so like janitorial services i can see that getting gig mm -hmm. economy very very quickly and just say hey you know we'll hire whatever janitor bids the least to come clean the school today we don't need to form a relationship with that person we'll just make it as competitive as the marketplace lets us and drive the efficiency down and down and down to the bottom it's crazy the um that that quote that really stuck out for me at the end of her piece only people who understand the looming threat are the ones enabling it um so you know maybe is the worker who understands the situation the software engineer in this case then and and that there's then a certain kind of responsibility and um uh ethics and things like this that they should be beginning to explore and think about because they seem you know folks such as yourself and others seem to be the ones who currently at this point in time right now still have um that ability to walk away from the desk organized amongst each other in some way uh in a fashion that would actually make ownership go oh oh okay i hear you guys Hi. what was that about something other than growth and profit oh right. yeah we can think about that sure, well we totally um so you know if you could talk a little bit about about that dynamic and what you're seeing as a software engineer within this you know problem that that seems to be emerging yeah totally so you know just to for the listeners who haven't read that susan fowler piece she talks she's a former engineer at uber you know very famous for writing a blog post that exposed some of the the patriarchal problems that existed under Travis Kalanick and his leadership at Uber. But this article was about um, the ways in which the software convinces and offers incentives to drivers to do more. So, you know, if you don't, if you've never driven for Uber, you might not know, but there are lots of different ways and lots of different rates at which you can be paid, depending on how many rides you do per, you know, period of time how high you get rated during those rides. And there are tiers for drivers so that if you give more rides and you accept a higher percentage of rides that come in to you through the automated queuing system and you get higher star ratings, you can, you can make more money. And there's tons of power on the software engineering side to just tweak those tools a little bit and say, okay, you know, now you need to do 700 rides per day or whatever, 700 rides per week before you can bust into the next tier. And we'll bump your pay up by this amount. And, you know, she describes overhearing a conversation between two engineers that are like, basically, you have to dangle the carrot right in front of the stupid driver's face, and then they'll do whatever we want them to do. So people who have this power, and they're sometimes aware of it, like these two engineers were, People who have the power to design incentives on those systems need to think really carefully about what that means for the human on the other end of those systems. Because if you're thinking of a driver as someone who needs to be tricked into doing Uber's bidding by paying them the least possible amount of money, you know, that's an optimization problem that's very appealing to people who, like me, got a computer science degree. It's very mathematical, it's very cold, and you can do it. You can say like, how do I get just the drivers? And you know, you don't think of like Tim or Sarah or whoever driving, you think of the drivers. 
can I get the cars to move the maximal amount on the least possible distance between rides? And how much do I have to pay those cars in order to get them to follow the behavior that I've chosen for them? So one of the, the things that I like, you know, I'm trying to get through my writing across to people is if you're someone who's in an industry like that and you have that kind of power, you need to think really carefully about it. You need to think about what the implications of your work are going to be and for whom, not just from, you know, your responsibility to the company. And I, I, you know, you do have a responsibility to the company. They're paying you and you have to do what they say to some extent, but you also have to think about what your impact on society is and how willing you are to just take orders from the company versus given the position of power that you're in, you have a, you know, engineering degree and you're making a top salary because they think that you're valuable to them. They wouldn't pay you if they didn't think you were valuable to them. And you have access to the people who are in decision-making places. Those are three things that a lot of people don't have. And if you have those things, I, I really hope that more people will start thinking carefully about how they can guide those things to say, not just how can I maximize profit for Uber, but also how can I ensure that drivers who are doing their best and trying hard are compensated fairly with a good wage, for example. And that exists in a lot of different places within the software industry, but there's tons of people solving those kinds of optimization problems that involve paying people as little as possible to get the maximum amount of work possible. And I'd like people to think a little, a little more carefully about that calculus and include yep. some other outputs as valuable outputs. If anything, what I see is happening right now in in these conversations, um, and you kind of touch on it a little bit in one of your pieces where you say that you'd like to see more software engineers um, kind of actually leave the valley and move into oh, yeah. other positions entirely, like legal positions, and kind of bring their knowledge to those to those spaces. And I actually see the need also for uh, another reversal of that as well, because I think some of the comments on that that one piece where you were talking about that, some people were saying, no, you know, I think one one commenter on Medium said, you know, that's that's a very nice idea, but don't tell software engineers to throw their lives away by chasing some political career or oh, yeah. or something like this, right? It's like. Uh, well, you know, they'll probably be fine. <laughs> it, they'll they'll probably be okay. And I didn't know that, you know, that that was such a throwaway thing to do. Um, there there is this sense, I think, in a lot of tech circles where a lot of problems, and you know, some writers have talked about solutionism, 
Um, oh yeah. Right. Uh, a lot of problems are just uh, they're simple logical uh, puzzles that we need to solve and optimize or or whatever the case may be. Um, and in many respects, uh, they're thinking a lot like government policy and legislative analysts think about incentive problems and incentive regimes and mm -hmm. how to organize society and things like this. These are the same kinds of questions that uh, a lot of my colleagues when I used to be in government were thinking through all the time, but they had a totally different um, system of checks and balances in place that mm -hmm. kept them thinking about optimization, but also thinking about a broad array of interests within that field of optimization. So it right. wasn't that you just had this one interest here, the capitalist interest, which is to grow and to profit, but you had maybe a collection of those. And then you had uh, some public interest groups that were organized and had, right. had, had a say and had something to say. Um, and had their interests articulated. And you had to kind of balance this whole field of interests uh, as best as you could in what you were designing, what kind of policy you were designing. And the way government works is you kind of go through a policy analysis and development phase, and then you go into a, a legislative uh, analysis and development phase. And it's this policy phase where things are quite messy, and you're sorting out, you know, what are the governing principles that we need to have in place to begin even thinking about this problem and what kind of solution we could design that would satisfy these different interests in the best possible balance. You're doing that while you're also being directed by political authority that is in itself elected by the people. So they're being held account, supposedly, through that relationship, right. right? But they're also being funded by private entities that, you know, gave them money during the campaign or whatever the case may be. And so they have those interests in mind as well. And it's it's skewed in those senses, right? It's not perfect. It's still skewed. But it just gives you a, the kind of framework for thinking. And then they we go through all that process and then we come out the other end with uh, instructions for legislative drafters who are the lawyers right. who come in and they piece together the actual legal code for how these things are going to look on paper and how these right. relationships are going to play out and who's allowed to do what and who must do this and who may do that. And there's all these um, deontological uh, phrases and such that law uses to try and direct society to do stuff. So all that's happening in government. This is this is a government thing that the tech world is now having to think through. Software engineers yeah. are having to become policy analysts and legislative or at least analysts. Maybe they should. <laughs> <laughs> they should, right? But they're, but they're they're doing it with a very kind of tight um, uh, environment of interests. So they're yeah. doing good policy work, but they've only got a very tight realm of interests that they're working within, um, right. which is, you know, the owners, the shareholders, and all of those folks who want to see the company become more profitable, and that right. and optimization, to an and to an extent, the customers. Um, but that's, it's just that tight little bit. And they're, they're basically using technology 
in the process of optimizing uh, incentive outcomes that then appear in the real world that then affect workers and communities and how gentrification works and all of these things, which are big, huge system-wide problems right. that, right. you know, normally, not normally, I guess, because what is normal? What's but, normal, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, in a perfect world, we would be thinking through that broader system and the sorts of things that we're doing, but we're not. And so there's a need for workers who have the power, who have the capability to um, to make that tight bundle of interests feel something. There's a need for them to uh, to flex their muscles, so to speak, as, as far so. as as far as I see it. Um, and and not just in the traditional kind of uh, socialist sense necessarily. I mean, that's one that's one approach to organizing that works. But there's multiple other ways that folks can organize themselves and there's multiple other ways that people can use the technology that they're already comfortable in to create different outcomes, different uh, collaborative efforts within organizations and across organizations. So a question I have on that is what do you see as the future of organizing in these spaces? There's, there's kind of the necessity to just collaborate and get together mm -hmm and get on the same page about your ethics and your responsibilities and what you are a part of just as a baseline. But then where do we go from there? Honestly, if, if, if every company tomorrow did what you called the baseline, just sat down and said, hey, we need to have an ethical framework. We need to have a framework of ethics that we can then apply to our work and we, we will then have an objective way for ourselves as a team to ask and answer the question, is what we're doing ethically responsible? And actually sat down and did that as you know an engineering team, I think that would be an amazing and tremendous change. <laughs> it, would, it would have mind-blowing impacts across the world because simple, simple questions about ethics can can really fundamentally change what happens in the mind of a software engineer. So like, for, for example, um, I listened to an excellent episode of Radio Lab. Um, I remember where I was because I was stuck on the road from the solstice, the full solstice that happened recently, or not solstice, sorry, eclipse, the full solar eclipse. Mm -hmm. um, and in that episode of Radio Lab, they're talking about uh, talking to a researcher who creates falsified video. You know, colloquially, these have been called deep fakes, but basically it's the ability to have a target actor say something, anything you want in the world, and have the, you know, have Barack Obama give a convincing performance of whatever the target actor said. Mm -hmm. And they asked her, you know, hey, in light of everything that's going on in fake news and, you know, all, all of this mistrust about the media, do you have any concerns that, you know, your work in this field of falsifying video could, could be used to nefarious ends? And she said, no, I'm just a researcher. I don't think about that kind of stuff. Ah! <laughs> I think I screamed in the car, you know? Like, you don't think about it at all? You don't ever... What about now that the question's been posed to you, would you care to think no. about it with me? Um, Stanley, and, it's, and it comes back to Stanley Milgram's authority uh, problem, right? Yeah. Hey, but I can, I'll let you keep 
keep going. So <laughs> no, right. Absolutely. You know, I'm just doing what I'm told. I'm just doing the research. I'm just trying to get to end X, Y, Z. And so I don't think, I don't think that a lot of software engineers, I, w- I would say the majority of software engineers that I have worked with, while are probably, you know, great and fine people, and I liked working with them, but a part of their day-to-day experience of software engineering, and, you know, I'm not necessarily excluding myself from this either, certainly many times in my day-to-day software engineering, I was not thinking carefully about what the impact of my work would be, you know, three years after this software had been deployed, certainly not, or even about core and important things like what is my ethical responsibility to the user related to data that I'm collecting? You know, one example of something that I won't name the company because I don't know if they're still doing this or not, but there was a company that I worked for and we had to collect social security numbers as part of our signup process, okay? And we would, at the time, for for social security numbers that you typed in, we'd store them in something called local storage in your web browser, which means a copy of your social security number was sitting there on your hard drive in a place that's it's somewhat secure. It's on your computer and you need full access to your computer, but potentially like a cross-site scripting attack could easily probably have extracted that information if they knew enough about the system Mm -hmm. that we were working on. And we did it because it was convenient to the user. They wouldn't have to retype in information if they went back and then came back forward. So it was short-lived piece of information that was stored in the browser. But, you know, in light of, say, everything we've learned about what's happened at Facebook, I don't believe that we did enough work at that time to protect that social security number. And that's something that happens with database passwords and other login credentials and stuff like that. Facebook got in a lot of trouble for, for example, um, outing people as gay or transgender or lesbian by not having certain privacy settings private by default. And so people who the user of Facebook didn't think that they were exposing to the knowledge that that user was gay suddenly became aware that that person was gay. And, you know, in a, in a world where gay people are not necessarily, I mean, we're, we've made huge progress, obviously, in the last several years, mm-hmm. but that's a piece of information about a person that can be potentially very dangerous for other people to have. Mm-hmm. And Facebook has to be, and other places, obviously, not just Facebook, but places that take that information into account and engineers who work for places that take that kind of information into account ought to be thinking very seriously about how to be good stewards of that information. But that is not a conversation that I think is common to have among engineering teams, at least in my experience. Even just basic stuff like that. What do I need to do to ensure that I'm a proper steward of everybody's information that I collect? What kinds of information am I collecting that could be dangerous to people if you know they were to be accidentally released? How do I keep information that comes onto my system siloed to only my system? So like the Cambridge Analytica scandal is a big deal because once the information gets off of Facebook's system into a third-party um, database, who knows yeah. where it goes after that? Yeah. That third-party database could give it to anybody else. And who knows what their security practices are on that third-party database? It could be very insecure, so anyone could access it. These kinds of thought processes, I think, are are extraordinarily lacking 
and lacking even more in the world that we're moving towards where it's easier to become a software engineer. I had to go through, you know, four years of university training, and some of that involved, you know, conversations of ethics and, uh, you know, a rounded, I was forced to take, you know, certain classes outside of the CS department and take some liberal arts classes and at least have exposure to that kind of information. Now you can get trained on the very basics, you know, no security stuff, six to 12 weeks of training or whatever, and then chop, 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 push you out the door, go start making decisions. So we're in a place where it's going to be easier and easier to not have those conversations if we allow ourselves to, because more and more people will be able to build the code, build the tools, build the software, that sort of thing. So maybe I'm impatient, uh, but I feel like, uh, I feel like this, this uh, placing of responsibility on the, um, the individual software engineers to basically kind of have a, have a ethical consideration uh, is is like it's it's like it is the baseline and it would be great if many companies did the baseline but um, it seems like there needs to be kind of uh, there needs to be something more because even if you do have that thought process of okay wait a minute um, I think what I'm doing right now is wrong or I think mm-hmm. I think we need to be uh, thinking through this if they're just uh, isolated in in that opinion it it comes back to this isolation problem again, right? Right, 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 right. There, it, workers are, it, software engineer workers, even though they might be um, located all around the world, they might be working in distributed teams, they're still having a lot more interaction than, say, an Uber driver or right. these sorts of folks, right? Um, and so it seems to me that as the pace of automation speeds up and as workers find themselves more and more uh in this gig economy and maybe even this gig economy expands to software engineers eventually as well uh it seems like there's a shrinking window of opportunity to organize kind of i think so yeah and i think you know uh, on tangential to this also is like we need other big power structures to be involved right We need workers to become an organized power structure in and of themselves, but we also need to see, you know, some regulation has been coming out of like Europe, for example, the general data protection GDPR regulation. Probably is regulation. Yeah. Yeah. And laws like the right to be forgotten, you know, are putting big pressure on, on businesses to actually be compliant with, some kind of of ethics that comes from outside of the company. So I think both politics and, you know, organized workers can be the source of organized power to force some changes and that we should be. But I I definitely think that we, we could run out of time. You know, we've seen wealth consolidate to an insane amount in this country. We're in a new gilded age and that's happening not just in the United States, mm-hmm. but kind of unique to the United States in in contrast to Western Europe in a lot of places is that we also have a really kind of foundational lack of a social safety net. We don't have healthcare that's provided for us by the government like just about every other Western democracy yep. that exists. So, you know, we're all essentially one catastrophic medical accident away from 
bankruptcy yes in this country bankruptcy and huge debt and that's a very powerful thing keeping workers down you know mm-hmm. if you if you don't have any time or money to not work you know what are you gonna do yeah you can go to work and make what you can and scrape out a living um so so tax policy should also i think be part of this and there are ideas coming out about like universal basic income is an interesting idea that's worth exploring um, but also just getting to the basics of a, you know, a social contract like the kind that Western Europe has, has organized for would be really powerful for a lot of Americans and give us an opportunity to have to, that could lead to better ability to organize among laborers. Because right now, the risk of not working is a big, big, big risk. And that means if you start, you know, start a little labor organization within your company, let's say you work for Amazon. Jeff Bezos is going to fire you. I mean, not him personally, but his ideas about unions are well known and he mm-hmm. doesn't want any of that in his company. So if you start something like that, he's going to ax you. If you're in a position where losing your job is a big risk, which I would say for the majority of Americans, it is, then what are you going to do? Can't organize or else you'll lose your job. Mm-hmm. And if you get fired for organizing, you make it riskier you know, because you have a harder time getting a next job. Yeah. Because, you know, there's solidarity among the capitalist class, just like there could be solidarity among the working class. So, so I think you're right, you know, just getting to baseline of ethics probably isn't enough. And I would love to start seeing some more organizations pop out and, you know, like legitimate unions. Union participation has really decreased in the United States over the last several years. And, you know, I think we've already been talking about implicitly a lot of the reasons for that. But it's a good time for workers to stand up and say, hey, you know, the the world is going places that we don't necessarily want it to. And you still need us. You know, there's a window of time where you still need us. And now's that time. And people at the top, that's what I wish is that people at the top, people who are making comfortable salaries right now, you know, web developers making Ninety to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per year. They need to start joining organizations like this because if it's just the Uber drivers who unionize, you know, we're not we're not going to make big process. But if the union, if the Uber drivers can join into a union where also the AI practitioners and the application developers mm-hmm. are participants in that union as well, their power together is much, much greater. And they could easily create a system where even still the people who are making high, strong professional salaries, you know, 90 to 150 to $200,000 per year, not unheard of for software engineers over here, they could still find ways to push themselves up and be better, you know, compensated themselves, mostly on the backs of the shareholders. Take a little bit of money away from the shareholders, take a little bit of money away from the executives, who are making in some cases like 300 times the average salary of a worker, take the money from them and distribute it amongst, you know, what used to be the middle class and the working class. And I think those types of collaborations would be very interesting, but it's harder to convince those software engineers to to realize that that could be beneficial to them and say, yeah, I will participate in the union because they are, you know, white collar workers and they think they've already got a pretty cushy Mm -hmm. gig. Yeah, no, this is this is uh, it's a perennial problem, uh, but I think uh, you know I think what it what it illustrates is just how um, 
how that perennial problem uh, is just uh, continuing to evolve in our world and continuing to um, transform uh, with the pace of technology and, and its transformations, right? Um, and I think a, a big uh, a big learning, I think, over the past few centuries of, of this question um, has been that it can't really be, uh, at least I don't believe it should be, uh, some sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, metaphor of warfare between classes or something like this, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's 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 got to be something bigger than that because really what we're dealing with right now um, uh, on many fronts is a is a bit of a huge system-wide wicked problem that has um, its tendrils into uh, you know the economy and how it's operating fossil fuels uh, climate change um, toxicity levels in the environment uh, you know, soil food webs being degraded, aquifers shrinking, wildfire. Like, there's so many different things going on, and they're all uh, complex and tangled messes, right? And nobody's going to benefit from, you know... Catastrophic climate change. Catastrophic climate change. Yeah. Exactly. Nobody's going to benefit from that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's just one, one sliver. There's these broader societal problems that come with those sorts of sorts of issues that nobody's going to benefit from. It's not going to create a safe environment for CEOs and for wealthy people to exist in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like it's just I mean, not. No one wants to push it to the brink where, where, you know, there's riots. journeys through uh, software employment and Silicon Valley, uh, I guess over the past five years, and, it, and even before that as well too, what are some key lessons that you think you want to convey to folks about how to do this kind of work, to do this kind of thinking uh, in this new context that we find ourselves in? Okay, yeah. If you are like, uh, you know, a young software engineer getting your start and or, you know, joining the software engineering world from somewhere else, I would say don't don't take for granted how much power you have. Once you've been hired at a, in a software engineering position, you're you're an important part of that organization and you have access to people and power that a lot of people don't have. So it's really easy. I've seen this over and over again as a software engineer. It's really easy to think of yourself as just a cog in a wheel. And mm. in some ways you are, but in some ways you aren't. In some ways you're very big and very powerful and you'll be in meetings with powerful people and you'll have opportunities to say important things in those meetings. Don't squander those opportunities. Mm. You know, you're, you're strong and powerful and be brave with that power. I think that can be super important. So if you see something, say something, and especially 
say something to the powerful people that you have access to. That's something that I wish I did a little more early on in my career and later in my career when when I became a little more brave, I never regretted it, even though it, it often wasn't <laughs> great for me in terms of outcome in that moment. I don't regret ever, you know, speaking a little bit of truth to the power that I had access to. Oh, and so that's interesting. Tell me a little bit about just briefly about what it is that you learned in doing that and taking that that risk, that plunge. Yeah, okay. There are people who agree with you who are not saying anything. That's one of the things that hmm. I became immediately aware of. So, you know, this is in the context of like asking hard questions in town hall meetings. You know, this is very popular in in the software world as far as I've seen it where the whole company gets together and you're able to meet with the CEO and the COO and other chief executives and they they open the floor for questions you know like what are we doing well and what are we doing poorly and if you have something to contribute about what's going poorly and especially you know we've spent a lot of time talking about ethics and worker compensation and stuff like that this is a this is a great time to stand up and say like hey here's an example of a problem that i see at my company and I think we should address it. And I think I was always surprised by how many people afterwards would come up to me and say something like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm so glad you held his feet to the fire. I can't tell you how much it means to me that you stood up for my team or my group in that meeting. And that's a way that you can start forming this solidarity and start forming organizations within your little world, you know, within your sphere of influence that help those people feel empowered just by knowing that you, a a little more powerful person, have their back, and also that you're thinking about questions and what matters to them. I was always really overwhelmed with positive feedback, even when the CEO kind of furrowed their brow and got a little mad and had words with me afterwards. So the good outweighs the challenging conversation with CEO for me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I I think that's a great, uh, I think, I've been in situations like that as well, uh, but in a totally other context. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think that there's a lot of people who silently agree with with uh, with folks who stand up and say something, and uh, you'd be surprised. But you don't know that until you just try. Until you do it. Until you yeah. do it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, here's another one. Uh, based on kind of everything that we've talked about so far, uh, how would you sum up our entire conversation uh, into like just a small select handful of sentences, like uh, not necessarily an elevator pitch, but, but like what would you say in terms of like here's here's what we got to do? Okay, we are we are in a new version of the Gilded Age. You know, it's the 1920s all over again, and just like we needed a new deal to pull ourselves out of what was a very trying situation for the working class of the 1920s. We need new big ideas that are not going to come just from government and are not going to come just from organized labor unions, but are going to come from all kinds of people working in all kinds of industries. Software and technology will be one part of that. And if you're in one of those worlds and you have a sphere of influence, we all need to start thinking about what the new deal should be and how we're going to get out of this mess. Because, I mean, I think one of the most poignant things we said is no one's going to survive climate change. And climate change is super associated with 
all of these problems, the, the concentration of wealth and the concentration of power and the way that resources are, are used by those concentrated powers. So start thinking big before, you know. We have to just think before small. Before it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> we have an opportunity to think big right now. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the more time we we waste, uh, it's just going to be thinking small. Like I need water today, yeah. and <laughs> fuel or food or whatever the case. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Okay, I like that. That's great. Um, and lastly, uh, for for listeners and for readers, uh, where is this conversation happening, in your opinion, um, online, and where where should folks be looking for resources and ideas and connections okay so if you're in the san francisco bay area i think the tech workers coalition is a really interesting organization and i mean you don't have to be in the bay area to to support that group but they started out here in the bay area and i'm sure they're interested in moving their chapters worldwide it's the connected world so if you're interested in thinking about the impact of technology on society, and if you're interested in especially thinking about the impact that organized labor could have on the technology world, mm -hmm. the Tech Workers Coalition is a really good place, techworkerscoalition.org, okay? Um, if you are a software engineer especially, or you know some kind of other engineer, I think there's one thing that you can read to give yourself a good idea about what, what I mean when I say thinking with an ethical framework in mind, and mm -hmm using an ethical framework to ask questions about the work you're doing so you can actually really, really think deeply and answer the question, is what I'm doing ethically responsible? I really like the ACM's Code of Ethics. That's the Association for Computer Machinery. But if you just go to ethics.acm.org, you can find their Code of Ethics. And it's, you know, it's a long read, you know, because ethics is complex and so is computer machinery. But it's worth it. It's really good, and it'll help you. I think immediately, if you're aware of anything that's been going on with, you know, AI military contracts or Facebook, you know, and Russian trolls on Facebook or Facebook data leaks, stuff like that. If you're even remotely on top of the news and you start reading that document, you'll go, "Oh yeah, I I totally see how this applies." It's really good. Awesome. Okay, that's great. So those are those are some resources. And in terms of conversations, uh, there's one in Silicon Valley, but they have they have chapters elsewhere in in the U.S. Or is it global? Or how do the how do folks from around the world? Now, it looks like they have regular meetings on uh, in San Francisco and in Seattle, but they also have a you know a newsletter and a Slack group that you right. can join. Okay, follow them on Twitter or Facebook. So an easy way to start connecting that's the tech workers coalition we're talking about yeah yeah and we'll put all those resources in the uh in the, in the posts and show notes and and what may have you okay cool. tyler this has been great uh thank you very much uh for talking with me about this uh fascinating and important subject uh, i hope been that i hope that you've had a good time i have myself um, yeah, and, uh, you know, just, just keep up the, keep up the good work. I'll do what I can. <laughs> do what you can. That's the, that's the, that's the rallying cry. Do what you can. Yeah, do what you can because <laughs> you must. Yeah, totally. Okay. Thank you. Absolutely. 
You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash working together. Your monthly contributions help make the show a sustainable thing. And the best part about it is that you get to join a global community of fellow change makers, an online community of practice, so to speak, for making awesome stuff happen in your communities. Because I don't just want you to listen to these stories. I want you to make your own. Join me. <laughs>